This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians have been on my heart recently. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In this scripture, Paul seems to equate the influences of sin and worldliness to yeast, puffing and fluffing and perverting Christianity from its sincere simplicity in Christ. He makes this remarkable statement, Christ is our Passover. In what sense? It is impossible to understand Passover without inferring captivity, pending judgment, and salvation by exodus. The Romans crucified Jesus during Passover, and as the blood of the Lamb marked the people of God in the first Passover, causing the angel of judgment to pass over, so also those who receive the mark or identity of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world escape the eternal judgment due us, which he absorbed in his body through the crucifixion. Moses was born at a time when his people suffered under foreign domination, at a time when a tyrannical despot ordered the slaughter of all Jewish male babies to allay his maniacal phobias. Moses was placed in an unusual cradle and watched over by Miriam, eventually to find unlikely safety in the very courts of Egypt. Jesus also was born and placed in an unusual cradle, by a young mother whose Hebrew name was Miriam. His people also then suffered under foreign domination, and the tyrant of his day ordered the massacre of the innocents, causing him to flee and find unlikely refuge in Egypt. Moses began his ministry by performing great signs and wonders, and Jesus also began the New Testament ministry by performing great signs and miracles. When God met Moses at the bush, he said, I have heard the cries of my people, and I am sending you to set them free. In like manner, we are told in John 3, God so loved the world that he sent and gave his only begotten Son. The people of God were in bondage to sin, and they had no escape from the universal powers and kingdoms that wielded the threat of death. And Jesus came as the second Moses, the one like unto Moses, to set his people free. All we like sheep had gone astray. We had turned everyone to his own way. There was none good, no, not one. And the God who is spirit came to live in the sinless life of Jesus. And that God longed for and loved the hearts of his captive children. And Jesus, through his life and ministry, learned to live in complete obedience to the Spirit of the Father that lived inside of him. Through our universal participation in humanity, we all became participants in sin 
and thus granted the enemy of our souls access, access to this world and to our bodies and to our minds, not only to harass us, but to hold us in bondage to the fear of the death we knew we deserved. Satan hadn't conquered the world by overpowering the angelic armies of God. No, God had given the earth to man, and man used that gift of free will to unlock the gates of hell, releasing a different kind of wisdom, power, and dominion into this world. In short, we had released a monster that we could not contain. But if God Almighty could slip into this world, robed in our frail flesh, hidden in the weakness he would save, and if he could let himself be put to death by the king of terror, then for once Satan would have overreached himself. He would have touched him who had no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. As his crucifixion drew near, Jesus would say, Behold, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no hold on me. When Jesus began to spread the hope of a departure from the kingdoms of this world, Satan assumed he would snuff out the Lamb of God in the same manner as he had all the rest. But Christ knew if he could submit to the agony of an unjust death, then Satan would have taken a life without sin, a life he had no right to touch. In short, it is sin that gives Satan access to us. And so, because Jesus was without sin, he could say, The ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. Satan would have broken his legitimate claim wherever the blood of Christ fell. He would have undermined himself in this world under his dominion. As the hour of ultimate sacrifice drew near, Clamoring with the jeers of injustice, everything in the humanity of Christ must have cried out, This is wrong, unfair, unjust. We are told that he fell on his face, sweating great drops of blood, and praying to the one who was able to save his soul, Abba, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He could have called twelve legions of angels and easily defeated the band of agitators seeking his death. But God was not trying to win another skirmish with the forces of evil. He wanted to disarm principalities and powers and make a public spectacle of their great king of terror. He was reaching for total triumph over the worst Satan had to offer. Yes, over the millennia and since, those loved by God had piled up transgression upon transgression. The word of truth sent into the world to maintain balance, harmony, and life had been transgressed, and its consequences of judgment were unavoidable. The penalty of our sins was flying through time and space like an arrow released millennia before with the first sins of Adam, gaining lethal momentum with every added transgression. And Satan reveled in how through sin and disobedience he had induced us to turn God's word of life 
into a dreaded instrument of death in our minds. But God so loved. And love said, if someone without sin can absorb in their body that arrow of judgment, then nothing could hold them in the grip of fear any longer. Nothing would hold them back from the bosom of God any longer. Jesus was fully man and fully God. The human aspect of Christ's nature was the Son of God, but living inside that man was the God who is Spirit, God the Father. The Son of God became obedient to the God within him as he sought the Father's will and not his own. And who was he obeying? The dictates of some distant God? No, Paul says, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Jesus obeyed the spirit that lived in him, which he had learned to follow for 33 years. In the days of the first exodus, on the night before deliverance, the battle lines at last seemed drawn between the forces of good and evil. Moses and the congregation faced Pharaoh and his army on the banks of the Red Sea. It seemed Moses had led the people only to inevitable defeat, but by next morning those waters, impossible and impassable, had parted, exposing a pathway of salvation. As the angel of judgment had passed over the godly and withheld from them all harm, now the people passed over through an opening of dangerous trust toward the shores of a better country. And on the night of Christ's great battle, when the competing forces of evil arrayed themselves against him, in the garden, the Sanhedrin court, and on Pilate's porch, Christ raised no grand argument in his own defense. When struck, he did not hit back. When lied about, he did not accuse in return. Though beaten, mocked, crowned with thorns, and bearing a rugged cross, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers, he opened not his mouth. After all the miracles, the gracious words, mercy and forgiveness, it appeared Christ would suffer only epic defeat. All abandoned him, even his closest friends watched his agony from a distance. But every battle Satan has thought he's won has turned into a strategic loss for the king of terror. He imagined he'd finally intimidated love into silence. He stripped him of his dignity and nailed him to a tree like a common criminal. And he never fought back, never turned bitter, never blamed God. He was caring, forgiving, and providing for his loved ones until his final breath. And when he died, Satan thought he'd finally snuffed out love's last flame. He thought he'd finally locked hope in a tomb and sealed its silence with an immovable stone. But after death had dealt its worst and final blows, after hate had exhausted itself and could do no more, sweet, lamb-like love took a breath. Yes, the resurrection life of God triumphed over death. The stone rolled away. The power of death had been defeated. Someone had punctured through the canopy of gloom, 
the shroud and shadow of death which had been wrapped so tight around our world. What Satan thought would be his greatest moment, his ultimate victory, turned out to be a colossal public spectacle and humiliation of him and all his powers of brute force. He was soundly defeated. He was disarmed and rendered powerless. He was triumphed over at the cross. As the waters parted for Moses to lead the children through, so the very powers of death and fear parted for King Jesus that he might ever lead us in triumphal procession. The penalty of sin was absorbed in his body. All debts were paid and the power of the King of Terror came undone. Like chariot wheels in the bottom of the Red Sea, our cosmic pharaoh with all his henchmen fell into the abyss. The ultimate sway of their threats drowned and buried by the power of redeeming love. Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame for the joy set before him. This is to say he was able to see past the immediate crisis to the ultimate victory on the other side. Resurrection is the perspective that looks past the current sting of pain or death and sees an eternal purpose working through our faithful obedience. We may start into a crisis with a thousand questions. We may seek the Lord for the thorn in our side to be removed three times in a row. But eventually, the resurrection perspective comes, and we start to glimpse the power that can be made perfect even in such weakness. This world in which we live is not a paradise. No amount of righteousness or spirituality or responsibility for those under our care can ever convert this world into heaven. In Romans 8, 23-25, Paul says, We ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Paul is saying that we are still hoping for something in the flesh that we have not yet seen. We have not seen the total conquest of disease and death in this natural world in which we live. But we have seen the total conquests of our hearts, our faith and allegiance by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is our deposit, our foretaste of the resurrection power that we're going to know in fullness on the other side. In 2 Corinthians 5, 1, Paul says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house, that's to say in this body, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. 
For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. What he's saying is that our vulnerability to disease, pain, hardship, and death is so real, even as Christians, that it's that vulnerability is like feeling naked. But he says, God is going to give us a house on the other side. He is going to give us a protection against these things. But that's not going to come in the flesh until we cross over to the other side. But he tells us that God has prepared us. God has prepared us to receive this. He who prepared us for this purpose is God. And he says that he has given us the Holy Spirit as a pledge. This is to say a great, abundant gift of life is in store for those who are faithful. But in order to help us believe in what is coming, God has already given us a little deposit, a little pledge and portion of what we have to look forward to. Without the Holy Spirit, we don't really glimpse the life the energizing, the power that is going to be ours in heaven. But through the Holy Spirit, we soak into our souls the very life that raised Christ from the dead. And we say, if this can animate my faith, if this can throb in my spiritual heart, then I believe one day, I believe one day it can give life to my mortal body through his Spirit that lives within me now. God did not create us to die, to suffer. He created us to live forever. Therefore, every time one of his children suffers or dies, everything in us cries out, this is wrong. This shouldn't be happening. And all of that is true. That's why God robed himself in our frail human flesh and came to earth to open a way of escape for all of us trapped in this death-bound existence. He broke into our world, into our veritable prison, and he unlocked the door from the inside, and he opened a way for us to escape through him up into that place where there is no sorrow or sighing, no pain or death. Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full, but the fullness of that life cannot be fully realized or attained here in this world. He has opened a way for us into a new world, and we may enter that world through the Spirit now, even while waiting for the redemption of our mortal bodies in the life to come. Now we can dwell in heavenly places through His presence. Now we can allow ourselves to be energized, comforted, and enlightened by the same Spirit that raised Christ from the grave. God is never the messenger of death. He is the giver of love and life. The devil is the one who comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus changed our attitude toward death. We saw someone led 
by the king of terror unjustly right into the very prison of death itself. And we saw him break it open from the inside and say, you don't have to be intimidated by this any longer because there's life on the other side. There's resurrection. From the days of Job to Jesus and to this present hour, it is the devil's business to afflict the people of God with pains of suffering and the agonies of loss. And he sends this harm to us because he imagines we are altogether like him. He believes that self-preservation is the most powerful dynamic in the world. He believes, as he said of Job, that man's allegiance is based on skin for skin. He assumes our faith in God and our commitment to love can be easily unwound. He wagers that we will be reduced and become just like him if the hedge is torn down and pain pours in, if the gifts are taken back or sickness lays us flat, if our loved ones are taken or our hearts are breaking. He believes we will curse God and die, but he is a liar and he couldn't be more wrong. When Jesus stood before Pilate with a death sentence hanging over his head, he didn't tremble and cower in fear or plead for his life. He said that he was there to bear witness to a truth, a truth that could undo all the lies the devil assumes about followers of God. He was going to bear witness to the truth that his faith in God was not circumstantial that his commitment to obey was not based on his own interests or what his eyes could see. The truth he witnessed was the total surrender and trust a man can have in God. Yet Satan still keeps trying his old tired tactics on all God's people to this day. And the pain can be real. The losses we suffer can leave us feeling empty, even hollow inside. Did not Jesus himself cry out as he gave up his spirit, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But that moment of forsakenness could not be compared to the eternity of unity that was coming after. Whereas the enemy intends our struggles to make us bitter, they will make us softer, more sensitive, more empathetic toward the pains of others because of the resurrection perspective. Whereas the enemy intends our losses or setbacks to make us turn on each other in suspicion or accusations that divide, they will make us draw the closer together because we have the perspective of resurrection. And what is this perspective? Did not Paul describe it for the Philippian church? Philippians 2 verse 5. Let this same attitude and purpose and humble mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let him be your example in humility, who, although being essentially one with God and in the form of God, possessing the fullness of the attributes which make God God, he did not think this equality with God was a thing to be eagerly grasped or retained but stripped himself of all privileges and rightful dignity to assume the guise of a servant, a slave, in that he became like men, and after he had appeared in human form, 
he abased and humbled himself still further, and carried his obedience to the extreme of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, because he stooped so low, God has highly exalted him, and has freely bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear ones, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, cultivate, carry out to the goal and fully complete your own salvation with reverence and awe and trembling, self-distrust, with serious caution, tenderness of conscience, watchfulness against temptation, shrinking from whatever might offend God and discredit the name of Christ. Not in your own strength, for it is God who is all the while effectively at work in you, energizing and creating in you the power and desire both to will and to work for his good pleasure and satisfaction and delight. Do all things without grumbling and fault-finding and complaining against God and questioning and doubting among yourselves, that you may show yourselves to be blameless and guileless, innocent and uncontaminated, children of God without blemish, faultless in the midst of a crooked and wicked generation, spiritually perverted and perverse, among whom you are seen as lights, stars or beacons shining out clearly in the dark world, holding out to it and offering to all men the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have something of which to exultantly rejoice and glory in, that I did not run my race in vain or spend my labor to no purpose. I have noticed on countless occasions how when a brother or sister goes through trial or suffers loss, those who show up first to give a hug, to pray, to reassure and love, are always those who themselves have suffered the most. And what does this prove? It proves that in their trials, they have adopted not self-pity, but the resurrection perspective. And that perspective is proven through the fires of testing and even through the valley of the shadow of death. We comfort with the comfort wherewith we have been comforted. We all are living testimonies to the defeat of Satan and his power. For all the things we've suffered, for all the losses we've endured, and for all the things we may encounter in the future, we will be made stronger and better Christians. We are learning to be more like Jesus, to despise the shame, to scorn the pain, and keep our eyes fixed on the resurrection perspective. Because of what we've already gone through, each one of us, we find it easier to empathize, to care, to love. We find it easier to endure hardship and stay focused on the eternal outcome God has promised in Christ. Today of all days, we are reminded that death is not the victor. Life is the victor. Love is the victor. Jesus is the victor. King of kings and Lord of lords, 
Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, first and last. Every battle we face has at some time been faced by Christ or one of our brothers and sisters around us. In John 16:33, Jesus spoke these words, I have told you these things so that in me you may have perfect peace and confidence. In the world you will have tribulation and trials and distress and frustration, but be of good cheer. Take courage, be undaunted. I have overcome the world. I have deprived it of power to harm you, and I have conquered it for you. Now it remains for us to enter that spirit that filled Jesus. Now it remains for us to enter that sacrifice in small measure that he undertook so that his conquering can become our conquering so that we can be made more than conquerors through him who loves us. God has a way of hijacking defeat and turning it into victory. He has a way of changing the story, even after it seems the promise has lain dead in a tomb for three days. Today we thank Jesus for the hope, the promise that he opened for us for his total obedience and faith that resulted in total victory, a victory we can all walk in. I thank him for the deposit he's put inside my heart, and I hold on to the viewpoint that can help me keep earth's daily trials in perspective of heaven's ultimate victory through resurrection. God bless you all. Have a happy Easter. It was high noon in the valley of the shadow When the deep of that valley was bright And the mouth of the tomb shouted glory He is alive So long, you wages of sin Go on, don't you come back I've been raised and redeemed You've lost all your sting To the victor of the battle At high noon in the valley In the valley of the shadow Now the demons, they danced in the darkness As that last ragged breath left his lungs and they reveled and howled at the war that they thought they had won. But then in the dark of the grave, the stone rolled away. In the stillness of dawn, on the greatest of days, it was high noon in the valley of the shadow. When the darkness was shot through with light, Jesus took in that breath and shattered all death with his life. So long, you wages of sin, go on, don't you come back again. I've been raised and redeemed, you've lost all your sin to the victor of 
the people rejoice. Let the heavens resound. And let the name of Jesus, who sought us and freed us, forever ring out. All praise to the fire of the night.
Jesus is a 